Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, and so we are here together for Bible study. I'm sorry for some of you who may have been on the first stream. We had to kind of restart, um, but we should be good now. Hopefully that the tech will work for us this morning. And I'm looking forward to it because today we are continuing with chapter 6 and going into chapter 7. And this is really where Daniel gets quite interesting. Uh, We're going to start with the lion's den. We're going to get into the visions and the four beasts. It'll be crazy and it'll be great. I'm glad you're here with me. Quick housekeeping before we begin. The first is... I want to remind you that we've got a list, an email list for this class. I want you to be on that list. And so if you've not received a reminder from Meredith Rose about this class each Monday, then I encourage you to visit our website, stmichael.org slash rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study, stmichael.org slash rbs. You can get information there about how to sign up for our email list, and then you can get reminders about this class each week and to make sure that you know what we will be studying each week. For example... I noticed on the bookmarks that we don't have a chapter 12 for Daniel, and we're going to just add that on to chapter 11, so the last week of Daniel will actually be 11 and 12, and we'll get an updated bookmark on the website for all of you soon. And those are the kinds of notes that we send out on Mondays just to make sure we're all on the same page. I also want to encourage you to think about the questions that you may have, questions that you've had over the past few weeks, questions you have this week, because questions help me know where to go in the study so that I'm able to make this as helpful to you as possible. In addition, saying hello to your friends, people who are watching with you is always good. We are still in this quarantine, mostly, And it's nice to be able to say hi to people that you might not be able to see walking the halls of the church or perhaps out on the street like you normally would. So do say hello. Let us know you're here. If you're not from Dallas, and maybe this is one of the first times or the first time that you've joined us for Bible study, let us know you're here. Let us know where you're coming from because it's kind of fun to see just how far this Bible study's reach goes. Lastly, If you've got special prayer requests, we would love to say those prayer requests out loud as part of our opening prayer each week. And so do send a note to Meredith and let her know about your prayer requests so we can make our prayer time together along with this study as meaningful as possible. Speaking of prayer, let's open with prayer and we'll get started. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this day for the gift of life, and for the gift of love. Open our hearts and minds. Fill us with your Spirit. Give us the power and strength of knowing that you walk with us each step of the way and that we have nothing to fear in this world. As we go forward in this study, may we be filled and inspired to become the people that you would have us be, to help extend your love in this world. Please be with those among us, those we hold in our hearts and minds, those we do not know who need your healing touch most, especially those who are near the end of their lives. May we be to them your presence and your love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone, let's jump on in. We got through the first little section of chapter 6 last week. So the scope of today's lesson is going to be in three parts. We're going to look at Daniel's, Daniel being condemned to the lion's den, then Daniel going into the lion's den and being saved. So condemned first, 
saved second, and then the first vision of Daniel, which is chapter 7. The three sections of today's study. But before we jump into this study specifically, I want to take a look at some of the questions that we've received since last week's study. And I have, <laughs> I was just saying to Meredith that we haven't had a lot of questions during our classes, during our studies. And I think it's because people need a chance to digest this. Daniel is not just a nice story. It's not explicitly narrative like so many other things that we may study. And so it takes a minute to kind of chew on it and digest it and then of really great questions throughout the week, which I love. So we're going to start with a few of the questions that we've received in the last week. Um, the first is great because it kind of bridges from the beginning of chapter 6 into the second part of chapter 6, um, which is, wouldn't people suspect that Daniel would just do what he has always been doing, that he would be faithful? And the answer is absolutely yes. Last week, we talked about how Daniel was, people were plotting against Daniel, that people were actually beginning to set up a structure that would get Daniel in trouble. And it's all because they know that Daniel's going to be faithful, that Daniel's going to be consistent and his behavior will not change. And so when they set up a particular law, which is you can't worship anyone but Darius, they know they're going to catch Daniel worshiping Yahweh because Daniel is consistent and Daniel is faithful. And so I think that's exactly right, and we're going to see how that works here in the next part of chapter 6. Another question came from Jim, and it says, what's the goal of the author of Daniel in focusing on Jewish heroes in exile? And that's a very interesting question. Um, the book of Daniel, as I've noted a few different times, is almost certainly not written by a single person, but is a collection of stories. Um, and perhaps there was a single editor. That's entirely possible. But the stories themselves would have been told orally for a long time before they were written down. And so you can't really attribute the authorship to a single person because those stories have been collected over time and likely written down a few hundred years after the exile actually ended. So to that end, the author of Daniel is trying to give one big idea. And that big idea is that God's kingdom will ultimately reign forever. And we can say that in many different ways. We can say something as simple as, God wins. That's a good summary of Daniel. We can also drill down a bit more to say that the complexity of the world is such that we can get so distracted and so afraid of what's going on around us that we forget the very simple truth that God is above all of this mess, that God really will bring about his kingdom at some point. And when that kingdom comes, God's kingdom will reign forever. That's the basic idea of the book of Daniel. And so when we look at the structure of the book, and as Jim notes here, focusing on Jewish heroes, the stories of, say, the fiery furnace and what we're going to see today in the lion's den is not necessarily just historic accuracy, although they could have happened, sure. It's really about setting up the fundamental idea of faithfulness to get you through the hard times. Both Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then today Daniel, remain faithful even in the face of the most 
horrible things that the world can throw at them. That's really the point of focusing on, as Jim says, the heroes of the exile. It's really the people who kept the faith, the people who remained rooted and courageous and fearless in the face of a world that tried so very hard to sow the seeds of fear and uncertainty and hate. These people just resisted. And in that resistance, they remained faithful to God and faithful to the promise God, God makes to both them and to us that God's kingdom will come. That's our faithfulness too. We got a good question from David that connects with a question from Laura too. And I'll try and summarize these questions. They were very thoughtful and, and also long. And one is that David says that God is actually the cause of the things that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. This is back in chapter 4. And ultimately for his instruction, God does not, he says, I said, God does not cause bad things but allows them, which is true. That's, I said that. And he's wondering, and Laura really kind of gets at the same idea, if God allows the bad things and does not cause them, why then does Daniel write the story that seems to make explicit that God is doing things, right? God is causing stuff to happen like we see in chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Laura takes this a step further or makes it a little bit more personal to talk about the way that God gifts us with skills and abilities and then how can those skills and abilities um, be attributed to God's gifts if we see that others around us don't have similar or even skills and abilities that are quite at the same level as us, um, which is a, an incredibly complex question to ask. Both get at the question of causality. This is a critical idea when it comes to theological exploration. What does God cause and what does God allow? That can come down, you know, we can talk about this theoretically in the sense that there are bad things that happen in the world. Does God cause the bad or does God allow the bad, permit the bad? Can God at some point take back the permission for the bad? And when it gets personal, God does and does not give skills and abilities to individual people, you and me. What does it mean that God gives some people a seemingly good big share of those skills and abilities while giving others very little? So let's take these two, kind of separate them out. Both have to do with causality, but the first is that classic, why do bad things happen to good people? I've had a few comments about something I said, I think two weeks ago, the idea of the cosmic vending machine, that God is not this being that somehow does and does not do things that we ask God to do if we do the right thing first. So in essence, it's that if you put in exact change, you get exactly what you want out of the vending machine. It is very easy for us when we talk about God's or God causing or not causing good and bad things necessarily means then that when bad things happen, God can cause or not cause good things to come of those bad things. The problem here is it begins to look almost like a special magic potion 
if you say the right words and do the right things or don't say the wrong words or don't do the wrong things, then somehow God's going to bless you or judge you and discipline you with good and bad. Here's the problem with that idea. God is, you know, one can, one can say certainly God is God. God can decide whatever God wants. But there is a danger of God seeming to be fickle and God seeming to be so subjective that it really hurts. And I think there's a problem with God being fickle and even hurtful. The problem here is that what we see from Jesus is a God of unconditional love, full of grace, and pours that love and that grace out on everyone. A God that is love, a God that is full of grace, is not the kind of God that just willy-nilly decides who lives, who dies, decides who has an easy life and a hard life, decide who gets cancer and who doesn't. That kind of God also does not simply give skills and abilities without purpose. I think it's important, and I want you to hold this idea today as we go through chapters 6 and 7, because it's, it's a critical idea here, especially in chapter 6. Do we believe, when we look at the person of Jesus Christ, that God would and would not decide to do hurtful things? I think that if we interpret God only through Old Testament stories, we can see that God, in a sense, is, has judgment, and that that judgment can and does result in difficult experiences for people here on earth. However, as Christian disciples, what we see in Jesus is a purity of love and grace that actually reinterprets, reinterprets what God had done. I should say that differently. Jesus reinterprets what people thought God had done in the past. And that's a really critical idea for us in chapter 6. So we're going to pause there because I need to get into chapter 6 to flesh some of these ideas out. So just kind of hold on to that. And a reminder that if you've got a question or if there's a specific idea you want me to unpack a bit more, do make a comment. If you're on Facebook or YouTube, make a nice comment. If you're not on either of those platforms, feel free to email Meredith and she'll get those to me. Let's jump on in to the middle of chapter 6, and then we're going to begin to unpack a lot of those ideas as we go. So as I noted, last week we ended with the beginning of chapter 6 where there was a plot to catch Daniel. Let's begin at verse 10 of chapter 6. 6, verse 10. Now although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, that's the law, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room, open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and pray just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Then they approached the king and said concerning the interdict, O king, did you not sign an interdict that anyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions? The king answered, 
The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they responded to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you, O king, or to the interdict you have signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. Let's pause there. The plot against Daniel is working. Remember, Darius had passed this law. No one could worship anyone but Darius for 30 days. But Daniel's continued to be faithful to Yahweh, to pray to Yahweh, to worship Yahweh. And this story, in a functional sense, is kind of the opposite of what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So if you remember back to the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not worship a false god. So in a sense, they were commanded to do a thing they were not supposed to do, and they didn't do it. Daniel's story with the lion's den kind of flips that script. Daniel's commanded to stop doing a thing that he should do, and he will not stop. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faithful people, and they're told to do a thing that they know they're not supposed to do. They say no. Daniel, faithful person, is told to stop doing the thing he knows he's supposed to, and then he says, sorry, I just got a little question, and it <laughs> made me lose my train of thought. Um, Daniel is doing the thing he's supposed to do and is told not to do that thing, and he will not stop. Very similar. Daniel is put up, raised up, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in order to teach those reading this story that faithfulness in God is something that is not dependent on whether God does or does not act, or whether what you want does or does not happen. Faithfulness remains. And that is a really critical idea. We discussed this back with the fiery furnace. Same thing happens here in the lion's den. Daniel's faithfulness in God, faithfulness to do the things that God has said to do, is ultimately not dependent on whether God will or will not save him from the threat of the lion's den. That is a really hard thing for us to grasp because so much of the way that we discuss faithfulness is really rooted in this expectation of a result, right? We've talked about prayer for years in this group. One of the difficult things about prayer is the way prayers are or are not answered. And one of the things that I have offered to you all for your consideration is that prayers never actually for God. Prayer is for us. We don't pray in order to get God to do a thing. Instead, we pray as a way of grounding and centering ourselves in our own faithfulness to God and to help us become more and more faithful over time. Prayer's number one benefit is on the person doing the praying. That is quite different than what many people think of when they think of prayer. Because for most people, prayer is in order to get a thing. Or maybe at least, maybe prayer is to say thank you. Okay, that's nice. But ultimately, when we talk about intercession, intercessory prayers is kind of at its core, even though we may not say it quite so plainly, to get God to do a thing. Actually, I think the best of prayer is that we are reminded over and over again of God's love for us and hopefully our reciprocal love 
of God, regardless of whatever happens. We see that in both Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel's stories. Daniel prays toward Jerusalem, even though the temple is gone, because Daniel is really inheriting this tradition of prayer toward Jerusalem in exile. Because remember, the Babylonians destroyed the temple, so there is no more temple. So Judaism has, in a sense, evolved out of necessity. Rather than being able to go to the temple and pray, Jews in exile have to do the next best thing, which is face where the temple was and pray with the hope that God will hear. Daniel stays true to that purpose and breaks the law in continuing to pray. Now let's jump to verse 14. When the king heard the charge, he was very much distressed. He was determined to save Daniel, and until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. Then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no interdict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king gave the command, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. So note here that Darius is sort of regretful that he has to kill Daniel. Darius has, we assume, figured out that Daniel's valuable and that Daniel's a good guy. Darius likely didn't really want to pass that law and was, we don't know that, that Darius was coerced, but in a sense, Darius may have been. And at this point, he realizes that that law is going to cause him to have to kill a person that he doesn't want to kill. We might even say that it would cause him to kill a person he really respects and or likes or loves. And Darius is sort of caught in a hard place. And he knows he's got to stay faithful, true to the law that he passed. And so he condemns Daniel to go into the lion's den. Daniel stays true to his faith and is ultimately put with the lions. That's the end of the first section. So what we're going to do is we're going to go into the second section where Daniel is saved. So a reminder, ask some questions, make some comments, and it'll help me make this as productive as possible. Let's look at verse 19. At, day of, at the break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. All is good at this point. <laughs> so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave a command, and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Um, we'll pause there. Man, that kind of went off the rails fast, didn't it? First, we have this lovely moment where Darius goes rushing to the den and says, Daniel, are you okay? And Daniel says, yep, I'm good. An angel came, shut the lions' mouths. You can go ahead and pull me back up. And Darius is very pleased about this. 
But then Darius decides he's going to get some retribution against those who put him in the position to have to condemn Daniel in the first place, and it's a little messy and ugly. Um, but the very end, verse 28, says, Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The end of this chapter is really the end of the narrative portion of Daniel. It's the end of the stories in the book of Daniel. And then we transition with chapter 7 into visions, and it, it gets all kinds of crazy and great. Daniel is saved from the lion's den. Let's just kind of parse this out a little bit. Daniel is saved from the lion's den because an angel shut the lion's mouths. And we know the story very well, right? We've seen images of this story. This is one of those great graphic stories that kids really latch onto. There is a similar saving from death here that happens with the fiery furnace, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go in the furnace. An angel comes, keeps them safe. Daniel goes into the lion's den, an angel comes and keeps him safe. So we can expose, we can, uh, I'm sorry, we can suppose that though it's not explicit, Daniel had the same mindset as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the faithfulness of all four of them is really what saved them. Now, here is where we get into part of the question um, that began this study. The stories of the fiery furnace and the lion's den gets at the heart of a very difficult topic, which is why doesn't God stop bad things from happening? Now, we can extend this idea in many ways, but stories like the lion's den are part of what create the expectation that somehow faithfulness and prayer will save us from bad things. I think that works when life is pretty good, when the bad things in our life are relatively simple things, then I get that the idea of prayer and faithfulness keeping us from bad experiences might sustain us for a time. When, when really bad things happen, and I won't say real bad things, but really bad things happen. For example, a loved one gets sick. Cancer diagnosis goes bad. A car accident kills someone. And on and on and on. When the really bad stuff happens, it's a little too easy for us to ask, why God? Why did you allow the bad thing to happen? Why did you perhaps not stop the bad thing from happening? And this is the same problem that arises when someone's in a horrible accident and is permanently injured, perhaps even harder than death itself, where you struggle with all of the pain and the heartbreak that an injury sustains for the rest of life. This is really, this is really hard. And so at the risk of trying to make a, an incredibly complex question too simple, hang with me. Because I see this line of questioning giving us two basic options. There are other options, and there are nuanced options off of these two options. But fundamentally, I see it as bringing us to two places. The first option to answer the question, why doesn't God stop bad things, or why do bad things happen to good people, 
is that either God chooses to act or not to act in each unique moment, and it's just left up to God. This is the kind of fickle subjectivity that I noted earlier that can be relatively problematic. So if we land on option number one, which is God gets to choose, and sometimes God acts and sometimes God doesn't act, or sometimes God acts in a way that isn't what we want God to do, and we just have to take it. The problem with that for me is that God choosing to act or not act is really a comfort in crisis, but it's a way of thinking that becomes really difficult when we are in those really hard situations. If God chooses to act or not to act, then when things go well, we can say, thank you, God, as if God decided in that moment to sprinkle some good stuff on your life. What happens when good stuff doesn't happen and the bad comes? What happens when someone's child dies of leukemia or someone's got cancer and will with a terminal diagnosis? If God does all of that, if God has planned for all of that and then chooses not to act, man, I'm going to say God's plan is pretty terrible. It's not the kind of God that we see in the life of Jesus. Instead, what if we continue a, consider a second option? What if God has set up the world in such a way where he doesn't interfere or undermine our own agency in any sort of direct way? What if we consider that God has set up a world in which love is the most powerful force, but love is not the only force? So, let me unpack this. God created us in love. God loves us without reason or condition. And God hopes that we will love him back. I think we can understand the message of Jesus pretty much that simply. We are loved. And God wants our love in return. That's it. When you flesh that out, that out a little bit, the world itself is created so that we can return God's love, but there are other forces acting on us all the time, and those forces can tempt us away from the perfect love of God, can tempt us away from that perfect reciprocal love. And of course, we are human. And in our imperfection, in every one of our imperfections, we choose not to love God back at some point, and for many of us, many times, every single day. And when we choose not to love God back, our choices open us up to trouble and pain and heartbreak. And if God prevented all of the pain and the heartbreak, here's the critical idea. Then love, our love for God, is not true. The Bible is really a love story. God loves us truly, unconditionally. But if God, in a sense, coerces our love back, the love is not real. We all know that true love cannot be forced. And if God forces our love by doing or not doing good things that we want, that's a problem. 
And I don't think it is consistent with what we see in Jesus. And here is where the rubber really hits the road. I've said this multiple times, so it bears repeating. As Christians, the Bible is not all equal. The story of Jesus, the Gospels, is really our starting point. We begin our discipleship journey by answering the call of Jesus to follow him. Then we're able to expand everything that we know and experience, everything we think of God, everything we do, all the actions and decisions that we make, including whether to love God back, all of that follows our choice to follow Jesus first. So, when we find that we read in Scripture stories, perhaps like this one, that seem to somehow contradict or undermine the gospel, we have to actually choose Jesus first. We have to go back and say, actually, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? What would Jesus teach? How would Jesus want us to live? And we have to look at the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus in the spirit inside of us to help best discern how to proceed. Which brings me back to Daniel. When Daniel, or any book, in the Bible, says God thinks or God said or God did anything. We have to remember, this is really important, we have to remember that there are very faithful people interpreting life in a way that makes them think God did or did not do a thing, or God said or did not say a thing, or God feels a certain way. These stories are written by imperfect people. Now, they are people of faith. They are good, faithful people, inspired by God to tell these stories. But that does not mean these stories are literally, inerrantly perfect. These are faithful people interpreting what they think God is doing in the world. And we can't allow any of their interpretations to supersede Jesus. And that's ultimately why when we look at books like Daniel, it's important that we ask questions in a certain way. So rather than saying, why did God do a certain thing? Or why did God say a certain thing? We should ask a slightly different question. Why did the people think God did that? Why did the people think God said that? That really then gets us into the heart and the mind of these faithful people trying their best to relate to God completely, but always doing so imperfectly because we are human and we need to be saved in order to relate to God completely. And that saving for us comes through Jesus. All right. End of chapter 6. This ends the narrative portion of Daniel. We are going to begin to go into that vision portion of Daniel that gets a little crazy and kind of great. And so I hope that you, if you ask, if you have any questions, ask them in the chats. If not, then send a note to Meredith after the class and we'll make sure we get there. 
All right, so we've gone through Daniel being condemned and Daniel being saved from the lion's den. Now we're in the third section for today, which is the first vision of Daniel and the four beasts. You need to know that in a literary sense, as we keep going, we basically go back in time. You will know to the very beginning that we're back in the time of Belshazzar. If you're paying attention well, you know Belshazzar was supposed to have been before Darius, and we've already gone through all of Darius with the lion's den, and now we're going back to Belshazzar. That's because this is really the vision section of Daniel. It's not meant to be history or journalism. We're still just telling a really good story. As we go into chapter 7, another just literary note, chapter 7 goes back and forth between prose and poetry. When you see prose, the prose is describing the earth and the messiness of humanity. The poetry is describing God and God's heavenly kingdom. So as we go through each of those sections, just keep in mind that the flip between prose and poetry is not accidental or unintentional. So let's open up to chapter 7 and start reading. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as <laughs> visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth, and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that had preceded it, and it had ten horns. All right, let's pause here. We've got this great image, so, so graphic. There's a great storm on the ocean. The winds are blowing the sea, causing great waves to come up. And then out of this stormy sea comes four great beasts. So just for fun, and I'm going to do this throughout Revelation as well, I went and got a few really good images of this, and I wanted to share some with you, and I think I know how to do this. So hang with me, make sure I know how to do my tech right. Here's an image that is an ancient image um, from thousands, from hundreds of years ago, um, a few hundred years after Daniel was written, of this moment in time. Check this out. Is that not amazing? You can see in the sky the winds blowing in four different directions. You can see the waves rising up out of the ocean. You can see all four beasts coming up out of the water onto the shore. And you even see the little man, and we're going to talk about him in a second. Here's another image that has a bit more of a literal nature that I just thought was incredible. How scary is that? 
That is some wicked stuff right there. Look at the ten horns on the fourth beast. I mean, it's amazing stuff, and it's so, so graphic that I thought it would be really neat to show you those images. All right, so back to reality. <laughs> I'm going to search for art like that as we go forward because it's just too good not to look at the way things have been interpreted over time. So let's talk about these four beasts for a second because I think understanding perhaps what Daniel's doing is important. These four beasts prefigure or remember four great empires. And I say prefigure or remember because I want to acknowledge that one can interpret Daniel as having visions of things that will come. Scholars don't really think that's what's happening here. Most scholars think that Daniel has the book of Daniel is a collection of stories over hundreds of years and that actually these visions were written in a way to identify things that had already come to pass as a means of providing hope for the people currently living through some difficult times. And so to that end, what you get here are four beasts that kind of remember four great empires. Now, here's where scholars skew off in a few different opinions. You can interpret these four beasts as four empires in a few different ways. The first way could be Assyria, which was the first empire that took the northern kingdom of Israel, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. If we remember in the history that we've discussed, Assyria took the northern kingdom, Babylon overtook Assyria, came down, took the southern kingdom, then Babylon was overthrown by the Persians, that's where Cyrus the Great comes in, but then ultimately the Persians are overthrown by the Greeks, Alexander the Great in particular, that ushers in the Hellenistic period. So those could be the four empires represented as the four great beasts. Or it could be Babylon, forget Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Syria. So scholars believe that this book was likely finished around 160 to 150 BCE, definitely kind of second century BCE. At that time, the Greek empire of Alexander the Great existed sort of in structure, but it wasn't as unified as it was under Alexander. And instead, you had kind of regional authorities. And the regional authority over the nation of Israel at that point would have been Syria. So perhaps the fourth beast is actually Syria, which controlled the land at the time this story was likely finished. A third interpretation, which really leans into this idea of prefiguring or predicting what will come, is that you basically get the clarity of the four great empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome, that actually in this vision, that fourth great beast is the Roman Empire. Now, when this book was finished in the second century, Rome did not exist. There was no Roman Empire yet. That was still a good 100, 150 years away. But if we believe or want to interpret that Daniel was receiving a vision of events to come, then saying that the fourth beast is Rome is entirely possible. However we interpret this, all right, however we want to land on its interpretation, the real point of this story is that the human world is not in God's control, that the human world is controlled 
by other humans, in that humans, in their imperfection, screw things up, and that God's people, the Judahites or the Jews, will ultimately be rewarded with their faithfulness when God's kingdom finally comes. That's really the message in this book of Daniel. So let's keep reading. Jump to verse 15. We get into the interpretation of the vision. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all this, so he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth, but the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. We'll pause there again. So there is a moment of grief here within Daniel, but then he realizes this important message. The great beasts are powerful. They are scary. Daniel may even be grieving for the empires of the world that will, be, that will rise up and be in charge of this whole region. to their animal nature, their human animal nature, and the idea that the worldly powers will not appeal to the divine and seek after God, that the people who are in charge of these empires won't actually be godly, faithful people. But Daniel knows that there will be faithful people on the earth, and that God's promise is, at some point, to make all things right, to make all things new, and to bring about the heavenly kingdom. I hope that you are beginning to see how Daniel connects to Revelation, that Daniel's visioning actually does appear very similarly to the kinds of visions that we will see in Revelation. That's a critical idea because the reason I did Daniel and Revelation in the same year is John, when John writes Revelation, John's not writing Revelation in a vacuum. It's important that we understand that John would have inherited this tradition principally from the book of Daniel, but not just Daniel. There are other visions and dreams that happen throughout Scripture. Daniel's are just the most vivid and probably the most significant to inspire what will happen in Revelation. And that's really important for us to know because the New Testament doesn't exist in a vacuum. It really inherits so much of what happened before it. Now, I want to jump back a few verses. I want to go back to verse 13. You noticed I skipped the poetry section. I want to look at a passage that begins in verse 13. It's really just verses 13 and 14. Because it's important for us as Christians to note these moments. So let's look back at verses 13 and 14. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So in this passage, 
in verse 13, Daniel sees one like a human being. Now this Aramaic phrase, remember at this point, Daniel's in Aramaic, literally translates to one like a son of man. Now, in Hebrew and Aramaic, the phrase son of man is a poetic way of referring to a human being, like literally the child of humans, the human from humans. However, later writers and later theologians and teachers will reinterpret that phrase to help understand Jesus with a capital S and a capital M. So not just son of man as in human, but actually son of man as in son of God. This idea of the Messiah and not only the Messiah that will lead them out of being controlled by earthly powers, but a Messiah that will have a divine identity, even son of God, is one that rolls around in the Jewish mind for a couple hundred years before Jesus actually appears. And in those hundreds of years of prophets and visions, there are Jews who begin to anticipate Messiah in a certain way. Now we know some interpret or anticipate the Messiah as one who will be more like King David, raise up an army, unify the nation, defend them from others who will hurt them from the outside. But there are others who begin to understand the Messiah as being more of a spiritual salvation and not a literal earthly salvation. And some of those seeds are planted in moments like this verse in Daniel. Now, ultimately, this first vision promises a moment when God will intervene. And we've already heard two clear stories of God's intervention. We've heard the story of the fiery furnace and the lion's den. When we get into chapter 7, Daniel's offering a vision of God's intervention as a means of hope for those who are in pain, for those who feel oppressed, those who are unable to make their own choices and live out their own agency. In other words, the Jewish people are God's chosen people, and they don't really feel like it right now. They've been under a succession of rulers from the outside, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and Daniel's vision provides them an opportunity to understand all of those empires as being worldly powers that will ultimately fall to the strength of God's kingdom. When this was written, Jews needed a word of hope, needed a moment of inspiration, something to hold on to, so they knew they would get out of this mess and that they would one day be given an opportunity for something beautiful and holy and divine. And that vision of salvation is one that I hope directly impacts us today. I don't really know anyone who would go to the mat and say that the world right now is just awesome, right? I don't know anyone who would say, yeah, pandemic and social upheaval and economic disarray. Yeah, everything's awesome. No, 
everything's not awesome. Things are not as we wish they were. Things are not as good as we hope they would be. And yet, we are offered this vision of hope for a future in which all of the pain and the heartbreak, all of the imperfections and the mess of our humanity will actually be cleansed and remade and recreated with God. That full unity in God's kingdom will be one day. Now, as followers of Jesus, I want us to be clear. Jesus asks us to follow. And in that following, we are not meant to just cross our fingers and hope that God's kingdom will come one day. We are meant to be part of that kingdom work. We are meant to love unconditionally, include everyone possible, bring everyone into the kingdom that Jesus prefigures so that we can be part of that kingdom building work. You know, here at St. Michael, we take that as seriously as we can. When we do good things, it's not to be a do-gooder. When we do good, we are meaning to help spread the gospel message. When we forgive one another, when we lean on one another, when we rely on one another, when we say our prayers, we are meaning to be formed into the kind of perfection that Jesus says we will reach through him with God. Now, that perfection is not going to come today in this form, but that promise has been made to us. And in the work that we do now, we help to bring about that promise in the future. Now, I see a question. I'm going to pause right there. Give me a second to read this question. It's a long one. Um, <laughs> ah, good question. Okay, so Ross asks, if we are to take Daniel and the Old Testament as not the literal word of God, but rather good people working out their understandings of God, how is it that we can hold the Gospels with any more or less veracity? Um, that's a good question, which is why I mention the Spirit. So the Gospels, too, were written by faithful people who are inspired by God to tell the story of Jesus. They are still human. They are still imperfect. They still tell a story that is a little too self-centered and a little too self-directed. That's why it takes a life of faithfulness and discipleship to help identify the way that we are to live our own lives. The Holy Spirit is really important. Look at the Pentecost moment. When Jesus' followers have lost him physically, they're afraid of the world. They're afraid of the powers that seem far too big for them. And so they huddle together in this small room out of fear. And the Spirit breaks in. And the Spirit falls upon them with this drama. And they are sent outside that room to begin to tell this story. Now, it's critically important. They did not do that just because they knew Jesus. They did not do, they did not go out of that room and begin to spread the good news and live differently because Jesus taught good stories. No, they 
finally changed the way they lived, changed the way they understood Jesus, changed the way they made decisions because of the Spirit. Just like that, we are not left to our own devices. We are not left to our own ability. We are not left simply with stories people told of Jesus. Now, in our discipleship, when we choose a path to move toward God by following Jesus, we gain the gift of the Spirit to help us move in the right direction. We gain the gifts of the Spirit in order to help us better understand how we can use our skills and abilities to help bring about God's kingdom. And we gain the gift of the Spirit in community. And here is where it gets really important. No one person can really follow Christ on their own. And I say that and I know that someone's going to say, wait a minute. What I mean is, when we go off on our own and try to figure out how best to live like Christ, we will certainly fail because we are imperfect. And yet God gives us a community, inspires the community with the Spirit to help raise each other up, to help form each other in a really tangible way so that individually we get to live the better life of discipleship. We get to live a life that moves us closer and closer to a complete relationship with God, not just because we ourselves are faithful, but because we have committed ourselves to a community of faith and we commit to one another to hang with each other, to link arms together in that physical and spiritual sense so that when we fall, when we make mistakes, we have people who can lift us up. When we make those mistakes, we have people who can speak God's forgiveness and love to us, and in doing so, manifest God's Spirit in the world. We need that, and we can be that kind of community to others. That's really the function of a church. It's not because God needs us to follow rules, or God wants us to come sit in pews, or God needs us to be able to work a prayer book or a hymnal, None of those things matter except for leading us deeper and deeper into a community of people where we can trust one another, love one another, forgive one another, and do our best to help bring about God's kingdom on earth now. All right, everybody. Time is up for today's lesson. I love doing this, and I'm glad that you have joined me, and I look forward to next week where we will press on beyond chapter 7 and get to more interesting, compelling, and graphic images with Daniel's second vision. Hope you all have a great week. Join us on Sunday for worship. We'll be back together again singing and praying, and I hope that you have a great week. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy. God bless.